the key to enabling the ability to access data is that you ensure that the data is never moved outside of the boundaries of an institution, number one. Number two is that you ensure that no individual can ever be identified. And number three, you ensure that even with all information that the data is never able to be abused. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. In today's highly regulated privacy landscape, figuring out how to assess personal healthcare data while ensuring privacy protection is almost impossible. As a result, innovative companies are severely limited in developing breakthrough clinical solutions dependent on data. Luckily, Rhythm and Das came up with the solution. As the co-founder of Triple Blind, Das enables companies to assess data without ever revealing personal information. In this episode, Das discusses how his company is driving advancement in healthcare while maintaining the highest level of security. Das also touches on the importance of market distribution and learning how to sell your product. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Des. Thanks for joining me this morning. Thank you for having me, Christine. Great to be here. It's great to have you. Um, you have quite an interesting background. I'd like to hear more about it. And you have worked in uh, companies before you start your company. And tell us your journey. Why do you decide to start a company? What prompt you? What are the things that you learn that you feel like, oh, I'm ready now? Wow, that's a that's a very deep question. I don't think you ever feel ready, right? But you respond to the opportunities that you get and and the problems that you see in the world. So I, I sometimes call myself, and this would be very truthful, and I call myself an accidental entrepreneur, which is I was very inspired by uh, the speech that uh, is called The Last Lecture uh, in, in Carnegie Mellon, which talks about a life well-lived is a life where you achieve your childhood dreams. Mm-hmm. And I consider myself very fortunate because I live my childhood dream every single day. My childhood dream um, was to build software at the edge of what's possible. So what I mean by that is um, I... I'm not a good maintenance of an existing system person, but what I do think I have a, 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 a knack and a gift and, and special talent, if you will, is in the ability to envision how technology can solve problems that are unsolved today. And I was very fortunate that you know I got my first computer when I was six years old. The first book I read cover to cover was the C programming language by Carnegie and Ritchie. And so that set me on a path of, always chasing uh, the next technical innovation that can have a massive impact in people's lives. And what I found was, you know, that to solve a problem, it was not just about writing better code. Yes, you can do that, but it is about understanding the problem. It is about bringing a solution to the market 
and seeing it all the way through. So that was that realization that solving a problem is not just about solving a technical challenge is actually what made me an entrepreneur. So my first venture was actually straight out of my undergraduate work uh, at college where we built the world's first mobile-only biometric system. We built a system that looked at people's eyes with a front-facing camera off a smartphone and identified them uniquely based on the red blood vessels in the white part of the eye. The beauty of that is we needed no extra hardware. It was entirely done in software. And so you could reach the billions and billions of people that were not buying expensive uh, smartphones. And you could deliver uh, what eventually Jack Ma called financial inclusion to the next 2 billion users that were on cheaper devices that needed a software-only solution to be able to access their financial assets. So that was that was my, I like to call it my first foray into entrepreneurship because it was really the first venture-funded company that really went anywhere. But that would be minimizing, you know, the experiences that led me to that point. I, I have learned the hard way through trials and tribulations, through several failures, how to potentially do it better the second time around, the third time around, the fourth time around. So to give you a little bit of the background there, my first, if you will, product that I wrote entirely on my own was the world's first uh, app in uh, in 2010 for a Chinese card game called Pai Gao or Pai Zhou. And what that did was, uh, you know, at a time when the app store was brand new, at a time when the iPhone itself was relatively new, allowed the emerging market of East Asia to play a game on their smartphone that was underserved, right? And it, depending on how you look at it, for you know an eighteen-year-old writing code on a on a MacBook, it was very successful. But at the same time, you know, I I learned the importance of not just building a great product, but also thinking about the distribution of the product, right? And this was also the time when Android came into play, and I quickly understood that any meaningful, impactful uh, venture that I undergo and take forward in the future will likely have to be bigger than just me. It is always bigger than just an individual. My next foray into entrepreneurship this time was actually in partnership with uh, a friend and an advisor who had a who was a linguist and and uh, had a background in teaching people to read and write, especially people with disabilities, how to read and write. So that led to the development of several apps for the teaching of, ling- of language and writing to people with disabilities. And again, the, the lesson learned from that venture was, it is more than just you know, being bigger than me. Sales and marketing and how you position yourself in the market and how you reach end users and customers are actually very, very important. And so that, those sets of learnings uh, have, compounded itself to make me a better entrepreneur today. I've also had a couple of complete failures. You know, one of my first ventures uh, that I tried to seek venture funding for, but never received it, nor did the venture go anywhere, was uh, a marketplace for student talent, where on one side would be students that need jobs, and on the other side would be members of the community that would be willing to employ students. Clearly, it was a network effect and marketplace-driven business. And I learned that 
you know, unless you're willing to completely jump in, and I was still a student, so I was not able to completely jump in because I had immigration restrictions, I, I could not do it. So one of the other learnings from that initiative was the fact that if you're not able to or willing to go all in, it's not worth doing. I have no plan B. My only plan today is to make triple plan successful. Um, and the only uh, thing ahead of us and the thing I think about when I wake up to the last thing I think about before I go to bed is ways to make triple blind successful on this mission. So the idea for triple blind came, of course, uh, because I was in a venture capital role where I was looking at investments for uh, for companies on behalf of Alibaba. So I ended up at Alibaba by the exit of, of iVerify, uh, the, the first venture that I talked about. And what Jack Ma did was put us on a mission to go find new and exciting technology companies that would solve Alibaba problems at scale. And one of them, of course, was how do you operate on personally identifiable information and personal financial information when data privacy regulations inhibit the flow of information. And as I looked at the landscape of privacy, what I understood was that everybody that was taking a step at that time were interpreting privacy in the narrow domain of technical privacy which is, of course, very important as a problem to solve. But the problem that, that plagued the access of data was the fact that there are regulatory, ethical, and contractual and competitive barriers to data that needed to be solved for. So that's what led to the genesis of my current venture, TripleBlind. And of course, there's been a tremendous amount of learnings in our journey so far. Mm-hmm. So were you saying that TripleBlind is... Uh part of the Alibaba joint uh, ventures? It is not. So Alibaba is not an investor nor uh, in any way involved. So I left Alibaba when I, I identified the need for a solution like this at Alibaba. But mm-hmm. since then, uh, I have left Alibaba. And because of the nature of geopolitical relationships, despite wanting to work with uh, the Chinese market and the Chinese ecosystem, we have refrained from any ties there until we better understand uh, the geopolitical picture. So my hope is that someday we're hopefully back in China addressing mm-hmm. a severe and important need of solving for patient privacy while still delivering breakthrough diagnostics and breakthrough algorithms. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So you mentioned a few things that uh, through many of your um, ventures, side understanding market distribution. Tell us more about what you said that you learned from that experience, that the importance of that, and what are the framework that you have in to understand or solve that distribution challenges and marketing challenges. That's a that's a great question. Uh, you know, I heard a quote at one time that. There is a first-time entrepreneurs think about product, second-time entrepreneurs think about distribution, which is 
which rang true very much, which is that you can have a very unique differentiated product, but unless you also have a way, a unique and differentiated way to take this to market, channels to market, and distribution channels, the product is likely never going to go anywhere. So the Achilles heel, if you will, of technical founders like myself often can be, we build a great product. We know it works. We know it works really well, but customers never find out about it. Customers are never in a position to learn about the value proposition and, and pay money. And the problem, of course, with that is as a company, unless you make revenue, you're not really a company. So um, I have learned the hard way to think a lot about proprietary distribution advantages in the market as much as I think about, as much as I have a tendency as a technical founder to think about product differentiation and the and how to build a greater, uh, bigger, better product than what exists in the market today. So, and, you know, there's, there's the textbook definition of, of distribution, but there's also the tactical definition of distribution, which is who is your first customer? How does that relate to finding the second customer? How does that relate to finding a repeatable sales process? How does that lead to product market fit and a repeatable product experience? All of that has to be thought about holistically as opposed to in a vacuum. You can't think about your distribution outside of the scope of your product. And you can't think about the product outside of the scope of your distribution advantages. So it's a... It's a um, it's a flywheel effect. A better product leads to and better distribution, and better distribution leads to a better earnings from the market, which leads to a better product. So you have to think about how to get the flywheel going from the very first step. So could you give us a, your real-world example when you were uh, at um, the iFairify? It's like, how do you... Uh, implement what you just said, like, you know, product as a tactical? Good question. You know, when we, yeah. The, so the question was, you know, how do you, uh, how do you implement what you just said? How did you implement that? And I verify, you know, when we were at the university, we were very naive to think that, you know, the technology would probably best be used by the government in uh, airports and immigration and border control turns out selling to government is a very, very, very long sales cycle with very, very, very delayed feedback loops. So, and as a startup, going after the government and going after long feedback loops uh, is usually not a recipe for, for success. So what we did was, despite our first inclinations, we tried to think of other ways we could go to market. So which is what led to us trying to do this on a mobile phone for the first time in 2011. And remember, this is a, a time of iPhone 4s and not anybody, if you will, was thinking about biometrics on mobile. So people thought we were crazy. But then we went to market with, at the time with MDM manufacturers, mobile device man, uh, management manufacturers. So this is the time when people went from having Blackberries that were issued by work and a personal cell phone, two phones, to having a, one device that was used for both personal and work use. And what our bet was, was that IT teams were going to be concerned about the use of personal devices for work. BYOD was the trend it was called, bring your own device. And in that world, it would be challenging for 
employees to always enter long passwords to enter into work mode and all of that. So that was our first attempt at going to market. Turns out we learned quickly with a shorter feedback cycle than going to government that it was not the right market to focus on. So what we ended up doing was then focusing on device manufacturers. So we worked with several mobile phone manufacturers in Korea, in China, in the United States to bring this as a first party app, a first party feature for phone unlock, for transaction signing, et cetera, on a mobile phone. Turns out that was also not a good market for us because mobile phones come on a very frequent basis and uh, we were spinning cycles in configuring this software to work on the different types of cameras. So different cameras have different optics that lead to different types of images that you can capture on them. So ultimately, our third time into market, we found a distribution advantage and a product advantage in working with banks and financial institutions. So we work with large banks, some of the largest banks in the world, uh, and some of the largest payments services in the world. And that was a very successful business because the problem was that we were addressing from there for them was that the mobile device owned the identity as opposed to the bank owning the identity. So what the solution we provided for the banks was that the bank could verify that the authorized user of the account was actually using the, the, the software, uh, the mobile banking app, as opposed to anybody that's authorized to use the smartphone using the app. So that was a great business for us. However, the biggest learning throughout all of this was that we were always a feature in someone else's app, right? So while we were successful in that venture and the venture, the company was successfully acquired by Alibaba, the grandest vision of what the software and the technology could enable was actually envisioned by Jack Ma, who was the founder of Alibaba. He envisioned how biometrics enabled by a smartphone could enable 2 billion users to use mobile services and mobile banking without needing to use passwords, without being literate, and drive what he called financial inclusion. So the biggest learning from this experience was that the company that you work on is only ever going to be as big as the vision you set for it. And we were guilty of not having the largest vision. We thought we were building biometrics. The grand vision there was that of financial inclusion with the same technology, with the same enablement. So I have hopefully not repeated that mistake a second time. <laughs> I guess the, Mike, the, the question is, I mean, it's easy to say like, well, they have a bigger vision. I think at that moment, you think that you have a big vision too. Like, how do you know that your vision is big enough? Or maybe sometimes certain product cannot fulfill that big of a vision or... It's a good question that, it, it, how do you know your vision is big enough, right? You have to ask yourself, what am I going for? And what's the next tier? And why am I not going after that? Mm -hmm. And if... And if you have an answer to that, go after the bigger thing, right? right? And then ask yourself the same thing again, which is why, what's the next step after this? What is the big thing that this delivers in the world? And why am I not going after the biggest vision that I could possibly imagine, right? If you had asked us in 2011 what we were going for, we, were, we wanted to be the best and the most accurate and the most accessible mobile biometric in the world. We delivered on that vision. 
if you ask me now what I should have had the vision for in 2011, it would be what is the barrier to financial inclusion all over the world and how do I deliver that? A hindsight's always, you know, easier, exactly. right? I think, uh, I think with your experience, where you are, also sometimes uh, 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 contribute to the vision that you have at that moment too. So, what I'm trying to say, don't beat yourself to death. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think uh, I, I. I also think as entrepreneurs, it is actually very, very important um, to not dwell on the past and to and to be audacious mm-hmm. and optimistic because again to the to the same thread that we pulled on earlier of the company's only ever going to be as big as the vision you set for it mm-hmm. in the same thread if as the entrepreneur you're not audacious and optimistic the people around you will never be right the market's going to beat you down the venture capitalists you're going to get a lot of rejections Throughout all of that, deliver on the greatest vision, maintain audacity, and don't be pessimistic are the key ingredients for any entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, um, that's very well said. Uh, so maybe it's a good time for us to, if you can tell us a little bit more about Triple Blind and what you guys are trying to achieve uh, through the technology that you developed there and why. Absolutely. So... For the longest time that I've understood the challenges in healthcare, the problem is that well-intentioned pieces of regulation and well-intentioned ethical stances have limited innovation. If you have a hypothesis for some algorithms or data analytics that could solve precision medicine, diagnostics, and other innovations in healthcare and life sciences, you are limited by the ability to access the relevant data. So Triple Blind was started to deliver the vision of data access, which is how do I access data in a way that does not violate regulation, in a way that does not violate the ethical guarantees placed on the data so that I can deliver on the potential of precision medicine of AI-based diagnostics. We've seen the power of AI. We live in the world of ChatGPT, Dolly, and all these other amazing innovations that are just kicking off the AI revolution. And foundational to that AI revolution is an ability to access data that has historically never been able to be accessed. 30% of the world's data is healthcare data. And because of well-intentioned privacy regulations, the value of that data has never been tapped into. What Triple Blind enables is the ability for innovative companies and aspiring entrepreneurs and smart research scientists to be able to access the data they need to deliver breakthrough clinical innovations. And what are the features that you have at Triple Blind that allow them to have that access? Absolutely. The, the key to enabling the ability to access data is that you ensure that the data is never moved outside of the boundaries of an institution, number one. Number two is that you ensure that no individual can ever be identified. And number three, you ensure that 
even with all information that the data is never able to be abused. So how do you ensure without moving the data, nobody's able to be identified and the data is not able to be abused, even at the patient level? So the key to doing that was an approach we have invented. We've got several dozen patents around it called one-way encryption. So historically, if you've heard of encryption, it has always required decryption because human judgment was required to interpret the data. Whereas with triple blind, you can encrypt data that can be used for only the approved purpose without ever being able to be transformed or decrypted back to its original form. So you can provide all the guarantees that HIPAA, GDPR, or data residency requirements place on the data while ensuring that the data can be used to its fullest potential. So give us a real example of potential user in using your technology and how do they use it? It's a, it's a good question. So the, the, the best case study of this is the Mayo Clinic platform, where triple blind is, in, is being used as a foundational layer to ensure that researchers that have hypotheses on new ways to treat or identify a disease can access the relevant data, as well as researchers that already have an algorithm can access the means to validate the accuracy, the bias of their algorithms. So think about it this way. If I'm a researcher at an institution and I use my first party data to train an algorithm, let's say identifies cardiac disease early. The problem I have is that that algorithm is only going to be performing well on the types of data it was used to train on. So most healthcare institutions don't have a diverse enough populations to where that algorithm can be deployed everywhere and with the same accuracy and reliability characteristics. So triple blind in partnership with the Mayo platform ensures that researchers are able to understand the biases present in those algorithms. And then assuming that they identify through a successful run of triple blind plus Mayo Clinic platform, assuming they identify the types of patient populations in which it is underperforming and use that data from uh, Mayo and Mayo partner institutions to be able to either improve or train a brand new algorithm. So the key enabler here is the fact that data is never moved outside of Mayo or Mayo partners. Data is never potentially leading to any patient being able to be identified. And the data is never able to be abused, even with malicious users that have unlimited time and unlimited computer resources. So those guarantees ensure that data is more liquid than it has ever been ever before, especially when it matters the most, which is in treating disease, in finding cures, and finding diagnostics enabled by AI. So what you're saying, so if you're a researcher uh, who, who has an algorithm developed based on your hypothesis and your data that you have, and then you access through the triple blind, access a database, say in this case, uh, say Mayo Clinic, and then test mm-hmm. their algorithm and then f- improve their algorithm based on this, the, 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 the data that you have access to. 
and then make the algorithm become strong and solid and, you know, uh, remove any biases, all those other things that uh, make the algorithm stronger. And then from there, there's a patient, new patient information that it can enter into the algorithm. And then the algorithm can decide to say, like, you have this disease, potential have this disease. Am I capturing it? Absolutely. Yep, you got it. That's the entire life cycle. So the key business innovation here is the ability to do real-time automatic de-identification of data and also protect the intellectual property of the algorithms that the researchers have developed. So what does real-time automatic de-identification mean? It means that when a patient presents at a healthcare institution, it does not have to wait months of manual effort and millions of dollars to be able to be used by healthcare algorithms, healthcare algorithm developers rather. In the same way, it also means that when researchers want to have their algorithm be tested for validation purposes, that it, their IP is not exposed to the data owners. So on both sides of the equation, the data owners, we allow them to achieve real-time availability of their data for use for data analysis, for algorithm training, for data analytics. On the algorithm side, we ensure that the IP is protected. Mm-hmm. This leads to this uh, triple-blind interaction, as we call it. Blind to the data, blind to the algorithm, and blind to the result. Mm. So help me understand, so your business model, like you provide this service, I assume, to the researcher or the algorithm. And how is it uh, play with the institution that, owns the data because they have to be willing to open that up. That's a great question. Yes. So the way uh, the business model works is we charge licenses to data nodes. So the data nodes that have data get trouble blind software and they work through their license independently with the people that have a use for that data. So in this model, triple blind is, it is actually very important to emphasize that triple blind never sees the data, is able to see the data, touches data, or have any systems that are able to access or touch the data. So institutions, let's say in this case, Mayo Clinic, have licenses to use triple blind software with their collaborators. So all they need is to install triple blind as the infrastructure layer for data collaboration on top of their existing infrastructure. Could be on the cloud, could be on-prem. And that is an annual license fee. And then that comes with user licenses. And those user licenses are users of the data at other institutions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's cool. Um, I know we are uh, short on time. I just want to make sure that I sneak in a few more, a couple more questions. You mentioned a few lessons learned from past your past experience. Uh, do you have a, a lesson learned from your journey uh, starting and you know growing triple blind that you can share. Absolutely. I think one of my foundational learnings at triple blind is the fact that much like you want to gain a distribution advantage and much like you want to have a unique and differentiated product, learning how to sell a brand new innovation is its own art and its own skill. And 
for tech people, for researchers, for scientists, sales can often be a dirty word. It can always, it brings to mind, you know, the used car salesman persona. That's somebody that's willing to, you know, ask stupid questions potentially in order to make a quick deal. But having said that, the actual enterprise sales motion, especially for companies doing foundational innovations in healthcare, in financial services, depend also on figuring out the right way to sell the software or the solution. Are you selling entirely on a value proposition? Are you selling with a value proposition plus a network? Are you selling on value proposition plus technical features that are yet to be built? Uh, And so I think my foundational learning so far has been that as much as I have thought about trying to gain a distribution advantage and trying to build a superior product, we should also be thinking about how are we going to be able to sell this? What is the sales cycle like? What are the resources required? What are the validations and proof points that will allow us to hasten that and make that faster? Those are key foundational questions that I wish I would have asked months before, as opposed to learning from the market, that those are the questions I should be asking. But do you think that something uh, you, this sort of things, uh, you can ask all the questions, but at the end of the day, when the rubber meets the road, that's when you learn the most. When you're saying that testing in the market, that's when you get a lot of. That's correct. And and testing in the market uh, is is really really important to be done in a in a way that leads to a repeatable sales cycle, right? Because uh, it's not enough to say I can take this and sell it to one customer. Of course, you have to start there, but through that process, you also have to have enough learnings to take it to multiple customers. So you have to find the repeatability in not just the product but also in the sales process. And I feel like technical founders often underestimate the amount of work there is to be done in the sales process. Well, thank you, Das, for sharing your story and your journey. Uh, Really uh, enjoy uh, learning from you today. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.